Flying Machine was a hit song in 1911, the same year that revolutionaries overthrew the Qing dynasty, the same year that Tennessee Williams and Ronald Reagan were born, as was British journalist Claire Hollingworth, who died this week in Hong Kong at the age of 105. Welcome to Hong Kong Heritage, where this week we celebrate the life of the doyen of war journalists with those who knew her. Claire Hollingworth had a special corner at the Foreign Correspondents Club, where her table was always reserved. This week, the staff put a glass of white wine there. Claire Hollingworth was born the daughter of a boot manufacturer in Leicester, England. She was going to enter politics, but the war got in the way. She studied Croatian and would later head to Poland. What she is known for is her biggest scoop being on the German-Polish border in August 1939, when the German tanks were massing ahead of an invasion. So Claire Hollingworth's scoop was a start of the Second World War. But what she is less well known for is saving the lives of up to 3,000 political and Jewish refugees, who she managed to find safe passage for to the UK. In 2011, I talked with Claire's great-nephew, Patrick Garrett, who has written Claire's biography. I mean, as a child, she was she was never really around. She was always abroad, so she was a bit of a legend. We heard of Claire. She used to send you know, exotic presents from abroad. I remember an Arab headdress coming once, and uh, so there were always things, the dressing up box as a kid. But she was more of a legend. I think I first met her uh, when she came back from China, so that would have been in about 1976. I had a visit to her flat in London, and uh, we drove around London. Uh, I remember we passed the Soviet embassy, and uh, you know, she pointed out it was... Uh, full of spies and I remember that fascinated me as a kid and you know, nine years old thinking you know well if, if it's full of spies why aren't we doing something about it and, and we went for um, dinner in a Chinese restaurant Claire was in, um, enthused about tofu and um, I, I remember uh, we thought it was going to be something exotic and uh, they were frankly a little disappointed. Claire Hollingworth was born on the 10th of October 1911 so the same day the same year as the revolution which overthrew the Qing dynasty in China. Now, in terms of her early years, can you tell me, uh, being a member of her family, I mean, when she was growing up, her childhood, who, who were her parents and what sort of background did she come from? Um, I mean... It, in the media, she's often portrayed as coming from a very rich, aristocratic family, but that really isn't true. Um, I mean, her grandparents uh, were not badly off. They uh, were partners in a boot and shoe uh, manufacturing company in Leicester. Her father was um, you know, basically a travelling salesman for that company. I think ultimately he got the uh, title of marketing director uh, or marketing manager. Um, but um, you know, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of the um, the hostelries and uh, taverns of, of Britain, where he could, where he travelled. You know, looking for customers and uh, signing contracts uh, for the company. Uh, so you know, he was uh, by no means a grand figure. Uh, he, however, you know, married 
the uh, daughter uh, of the owners of the company, so perhaps a good career move. Claire was born in a little house, um, a little suburb of Leicester, nothing grand. And uh, so, you know, what one reads occasionally in biographies of Claire about, you know, this this uh, hunt ball lifestyle really isn't. Um, it was a bit of exaggeration, I think. I was not at school until, until I was quite old, but my mummy used to tell me everything she could from the papers and from wasn't the BBC in those days I can't remember what it was but she got lots of news for me. So you started your love of news at a very young age? Yeah. She was actually um, quite left-wing in her 20s. Her first fiancé uh, comes from a, uh, apparently quite a, a grand family, but um, you know, maybe that was where the, uh, the Hunt Ball uh, stories come from. But she became quite left-wing. She was a prospective parliamentary candidate for the Labour Party in the 30s, which really was quite early. I mean, the first women had only, uh, hadn't even got the vote when Claire was first born, and when, when she was approaching 18, they were only just getting the right to vote at that age. So uh, to be a parliamentary candidate was... I think quite something. She joined the League of Nations Union um, and was one of their uh, workers. And again, I think she was the first woman to hold that post. So that was very pioneering of her at, the, at that time to look at becoming a parliamentary candidate. So what happened? She lost or she decided not to continue with a political career? No, the uh, the war came along. Uh, and uh, so that was um, in the uh, late 30s. Uh, she was nominated in the Melton constituency. Um, the war came along. She got involved with um, refugee work before the war. That was in March 39. She was in Poland. And um, that's um, the side of her life that really has not been covered. I guess it's eclipsed by the um, events uh, in September when Germany invaded Poland. But actually, in her book, she only devotes half a page to the story of the refugee work where the organisation she headed in Poland saved between two and 3,000 lives, which uh, I think it, you know, it was an amazing achievement. And uh, But it's just been eclipsed by perhaps the bigger story of the um, the war. But um, certainly, you know, having spent the last five years researching her life uh, for a book, uh, it's an area that I've uncovered and have been quite amazed at uh, the amount of work she was doing um, on the border of Poland with refugees who were escaping from uh, Czechoslovakia, which by then had already been taken over by the Nazis. So she'd been working with refugees. Prior to that, she'd been a parliamentary candidate. So in fact, when she got the news story, for which perhaps arguably she's most famous, uh, the scoop of the Second World War, she had in fact been only a journalist for a few weeks. She'd been, uh, she'd been a journalist at the Telegraph for a week. I think we can safely say it was her first proper job as a journalist when she uh, uh, came over to Poland. So the Telegraph must have been very happy to take her on with that, that, with that kind of story. Indeed. I mean, it, uh, well, I think it was lucky for her too. But, I mean, she got no byline um, um, at the time. Um, it wasn't the done thing. Uh, the very few newspapers actually credited who the correspondent was. Uh, so it simply says, from our own correspondent in Katowice. So even though it was her big scoop, her name's not actually on the front page. Poland, September 1939. The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest and sets the stage for World War II. Poland's 34 million inhabitants, crushed, scattered and... So tell me about that story. I mean, it's been uh, written about many, many times. Uh, it's the one that she's most famous for. But talk me through exactly what happened. She was in Katowice. She then made a shopping trip, as far as I understand. 
Yeah, I mean, there are actually two stories. It often gets sort of tumbled into one story. But uh, three days before the war began, she uh, went across the border into Germany. Um, it was open to flagged cars. And because uh, she was staying with her friend, uh, the British Consul General in Katowice, uh, she borrowed his car. It was a flagged car, a uh, diplomatic vehicle. She was able to drive across the border into Germany. And uh, she just uh, went for a scout around. She um, brought, uh, went for a bit of shopping, uh, things that weren't easily available in Poland at the time. And uh, as she uh, was driving back, um, she spotted in a valley uh, mass tanks, uh, which was obviously the sign that this was um, going to be one of the uh, main invasion points. I went out to Poland to become number two to Hugh Carlton Green of BBC fame. And I got to Warsaw and he said, one of us has got to the, go to the frontier. And I was on the German-Polish frontier when the German hordes, tanks, moved in. Claire Hollingworth sent the story to Hugh Carlton Green, who was the Daily Telegraph's correspondent in Warsaw. He sent it on to London. Three days later, the German army invaded Poland. Recalling that day, Claire Hollingworth was quoted in the Daily Telegraph and by the BBC as saying... I remember telephoning Robin Hankey, the secretary at the embassy in Warsaw, and saying, the war's begun, he said. Rubbish, they're still negotiating. And I said, can't you hear it? So I hung the telephone out of the window so he could listen to the Germans invading. Was it difficult sometimes being a woman journalist? Yes, I think it was at the beginning. Tell me about why it was. Well, because in those days... Women just stayed at home, had children and looked after the house. That's why. Journalist Joyce Lau describes her first meeting with Claire. I met Claire for the first time when I was just starting out in journalism as a news assistant. And I wanted to become involved in the journalism community here in Hong Kong. So I went to the Foreign Correspondence Club and heard that an old lady needed someone to read newspapers to her. And of course, it turned out to be this extraordinary war correspondent. So I used to read the paper because her eyesight was going. Reading to Claire was a wonderful experience because she would react and I could hear her opinions and her insights about the news, which I didn't have at that time. Did you know who she was prior to that? I did, I did know who she was. I knew she was famous. I knew she broke the story of World War II. That's, you know, of course, the one thing she's best known for. But as I got to know her, I, you know, I realized that she had dedicated decades and decades of her life to covering conflict. And the more I knew her, the more fascinated I became. And I actually spent some time reading about women correspondents in the World War II era and afterwards. Did, you didn't worry about the noise from the shells or the bullets? I didn't like it, but I didn't worry about it. I just put cotton wool in my ears. After the war, um, I've heard about her knowing spies who then escaped to Russia. So could we go into a bit of the, the Cold War post, post the Second World War? I mean, she knew uh, Donald McLean of the four Cambridge spies, Blunt, Philby, Burgess and McLean. Um, Donald uh, uh, McLean and Guy Burgess were the first to hop uh, to the east uh, in 1951. Uh, Claire had met uh, Donald before he was posted to Cairo, and when she was in Cairo, uh, they were virtually neighbours to uh, Donald, his wife Melinda. So 
actually knew them quite well. They were witness to Donald um, spinning out of control with alcohol uh, and being sent back in disgrace uh, to the UK. They were- so, so he was with the British... Foreign Office or? McLean was, uh, yes, a senior uh, Foreign Office official in the uh, the Cairo Embassy at the time. In Cairo, he uh, hit the bottle hard uh, and his life spun out of control. He was sent back to the UK, uh, given a new job back in the UK. Um, and then in 51, he and Guy uh, Burgess uh, fled. There was always the assumption a third man had tipped them off. They were under investigation. Uh, suspicions had been raised. Claire and her husband Jeffrey uh, were immediately onto the story because they actually knew um, Donald and Melinda very well. Um, Melinda, of course, had been abandoned. Uh, she'd got two kids at the time. She was pregnant uh, with a third. The baby was born a couple of weeks after her husband disappeared. It was assumed he'd uh, ended up east, but nobody knew. And uh, uh, so Claire and her husband um, did their best to search um, for him. But they uh, befriended Melinda. Uh, and um, there seemed to be something of a shoulder to cry on during that period because, you know, there she was. Um, husband disappeared, uh, media encamped around her house and uh, her just uh, just given birth to a third child, no idea where the, uh, the husband was. Mysterious postcards arrived allegedly uh, from him. Uh, and um, so Claire, in any way, um, stuck with uh, Melinda. They even went on holiday together in France as, uh, as a family. Um, and uh, in the end, in, um, uh, a year or so later, Melinda just just to sort of avoid the media attention, moved to Geneva, stayed in touch. And then in uh, 53, uh, um, suddenly um, Melinda also vanished with the kids. Uh, and by then, Claire actually knew um, Melinda's family. Uh, Melinda's mother even ended up staying with Claire and Jeffrey in Paris. Uh, and um, so that was the end of the story. Although um, Melinda's mum, in the end, when she cleared up the flat in Geneva, assumed her daughter was going to come back. And uh, so left Claire with various goods, a, a bathroom scales and a fur coat belonging to Melinda, assuming she'd need them again. And uh, uh, Melinda actually... Uh, um, did end up uh, leaving Russia. It wasn't a happy time for her in Russia, but uh, she never actually came back to claim the coats or the bathroom scales, Claire always points out. She had this fur coat from Melinda McLean, and she even had it in Hong Kong. We were cleaning out her flat one day, and she still had it. She was 90 years old. It was like in her flat on Upper Albert Road. Claire also knew Kim Philby, had known him since the 30s. So he was uh, the third of the four spies. And Claire used to see him in Beirut. He'd actually inherited her previous job for The Economist in Beirut. Whenever Claire was passing through the Middle East, she'd see him. And she was around when he disappeared from Beirut. Nobody knew where he went, but Claire put two and two together that... He had disappeared on a Soviet freighter crossing to Odessa. Uh, Although, I must admit, in my researches in Russia, I was in Russia in the 80s, and so I met the Soviet agent who was actually his minder in um, London, and he denied that that was the route. But at the same time, in the the world of espionage, you don't necessarily get straight answers. But uh, over a curry, he disputed that that was uh, the the route he'd taken. But who who knows? Uh, So, yes, so Claire had multiple collections to uh, the Soviet spies. And interestingly, yes, uh, when Philby arrived in Russia, he ended up having an affair with um, Donald McLean's wife and uh, and then he Phil he had a string of affairs in his life uh, he then broke it off and Paul Melinda ended up having to return to Donald and in the end she um, returned um, left the Soviet Union and was last known of in uh, New York there were uh, reports that she died this year but uh, or last year in the last 12 months anyway but uh, um, no one really knows what's happened to her well, Mr. Philby, the disappearance of Burgess and McLean is almost as much of a mystery today as it was when they went away about four years ago or more. Can you shed any light on it at all? No, I can't. In the first place, I'm debarred by the Official Secrets Act from saying anything 
that might disclose to unauthorized persons information derived from my position as a former government official. In the second place... Why did you decide to become a journalist? Because I heard the BBC and I found it frightfully interesting and I wrote to them. It must have been very bad grammar and said, I find your uh, um, work very, very interesting and I'm not talking about money. If you ever need anything from here, I'll always go to some trouble to help you get it. Algiers, a busy piece of metropolitan France transplanted across the Mediterranean. Frenchmen have lived and ruled here since 1830. More than one million Frenchmen in Algiers rub elbows with more than 10 million Muslims. Man on horseback, symbol of France, stands in Algiers' main square. The paper her husband was working for in, um, in Paris, the News Chronicle, it folded in 1960 and it just coincided with um, a spike in violence in the uh, civil war in Algeria. Charles de Gaulle, the grandeur of France and a grinding six-year war in Algeria. All Algeria is divided into three forces, the Muslim natives, the French settlers, the French army. Over these, de Gaulle, hero of World War II, his job, balancing the forces, restoring peace. That was when Claire went off and basically having had quite a quiet 50s. In the 1950s, she was um, uh, buying property, she was collecting art. Uh, she was writing, but mainly freelance. But um, suddenly with her husband out of a job and uh, a hot war in Algeria uh, on their back door, they, um, uh, that was where she went. And suddenly she was um, back in the action. Uh, she won a string of uh, journalism prizes. And it seemed to be you know, mainly just because of her bravery. She went places in Algeria where most people, why? probably feared to go. She was in the Casbah. It was a time where hundreds of bombs were going off every day. I mean, the, the number just seems unbelievable. Uh, the number of random killings that both sides were perpetrating during that period. And uh, Claire um, took it in her stride and um, you know, made some amazing contacts uh, on both sides uh, of the conflict. So, um, in, in a sense, I think you know, that perhaps did more for her journalistic credentials even than her Second World War scoop. So this was a time when Algeria was looking to break away from France? That's correct, but it was um, there were so many different sites. There were the uh, the French settlers in Algeria who didn't want that to happen. There were the French government troops who were simply trying to go and um, uh, keep the peace, and uh, there were Algerians who wanted to stay with France and Algerians who wanted to break away. So it was it was a, a very violent time. I mean, the people who were against um, the French troops they would have campaigns, and one day they would go out and kill postmen, or another day it would be hairdressers. And uh, anyone who seemed to be breaking a strike or in any way supporting the government would be shot that day. Very sort of clever but cruel campaigns were being arranged and it was, uh, there was a time where the forces who were against France pulling out, the OAS, were of the view that the Italians were not helpful in their media coverage. And so um, a squad of, uh, of their troops turned up um, at the hotel where the journalists were staying, having warned the Italian journalists that they had to be out of town uh, by uh, by tomorrow, one Italian journalist had decided to defy that ban and stay uh, at the risk of his life. Um, the journalist had hidden him in the hotel. The um, OAS came to take him away. Probably would never return. The journalist said, no, we're not saying where he's hiding in the hotel. Uh, I 
Daily Telegraph man John Wallace basically told them to get lost um, so they decided to take him instead they dragged him out of the hotel Claire yelled to the rest of the journalist group and said um, guys the only way we can stop them is if we all go they can't take us all uh, and Claire led uh, the press back outside at that point uh, the AOS realised they'd bitten off more than they could chew and threw him down and stormed off and uh, so you know, Claire basically saved John Wallace's life as well that day Taking it into the 60s and 70s, what was Claire up to? Claire, after the war, she was uh, mainly working freelance, a bunch of different publications. Um, she rejoined Day Telegraph in 1967, uh, and um, there she was pretty much a firefighter, so wherever there was trouble, Claire was. So it was Aden, uh, Borneo, um, Vietnam. The United States, as the world knows, will never start a war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Uh, the Middle East, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. So she was everywhere. I mean, they keep a card index at the Daily Telegraph, and uh, she has probably one of the fullest card indexes where it's every month she's you know, in a dozen different places. I'm talking with Patrick Garrett, the great-nephew of Claire Hollingworth. Tell me about Geoffrey, her husband, how, how they met and who he was. Geoffrey Hall was a um, correspondent um, when they met uh, for the Times. They met in Cairo in the 40s and uh, they travelled after the war. They were in uh, Greece uh, for the Civil War and then in Palestine for the final violent days of the mandate um, in Palestine, Beirut, Egypt and Paris together. So they ended up, by 1950, they landed in Paris. He switched to a paper called the News Chronicle, since um, folded. But he was uh, renowned as a very good writer. And uh, I think, you know, Claire's skill um, is very much the networker. You know, she's not the most skillful writer in, in the pure sense of the word. Uh, and Jeffrey used to very much work with her uh, on that. Uh, in the 50s, she didn't even used to be that confident about writing. You know, she's a, a, a supreme networker but she's just not the most florid uh, writer. And I think in journalists, uh, there are a few that are skilled in both skills. Uh, there's some brilliant writers uh, and some brilliant networkers, but to have both of those, uh, perhaps it's, it's a rare journalist that has both. And Claire, very much her strength is in the networking. That's where she focused it. But whereas Jeffrey was um, quite a shy fellow, but uh, he was uh, a very, very good writer. Now, she married uh, a Times journalist. She was married twice. She was married once... I think quite briefly in her youth. Her second husband was the love of her life, and he was also a correspondent. So later in life, she married Jeffrey Hoare, and she loved him. And I remember I mean, when I met her, she was already very, very elderly, and he had passed away decades ago. And she still talked about him. She still missed him. So it was clear that he was the love of her life. However, a slight shift of gear when she moved to China in 73. So that was a very different story for her because previously she'd always been covering 
action you could probably see with your eyes tanks and bombs and uh and planes and uh, the story in china of course uh, you near know, the final year of, of Mao's china uh was very different uh, more of a political story more of reading between the lines and uh, um trying to guess where what was going on uh the uh, obviously the, the western community the, uh, the very small media community there were no americans accredited at that time uh only the very first western correspondents there uh, and the diplomats were trying to work out what was going on and what the succession was going to be. Um, it was clear that Mao was ill, but uh, you know how long he would last and what would come thereafter. And uh, uh, so that was uh, a very interesting, uh, but a very different kind of story for Claire. Veteran journalist Jonathan Sharp was based in Beijing at the same time as Claire Hollingworth in the early 1970s. I went in December 1972 and stayed for two years uh, until December 74. Uh, Claire arrived a few months later at the start of 1973 as uh, the Telegraph's first resident correspondent in Beijing after the Communist Revolution. And that's when I got to know her. And you were there for Reuters? Yes, I was there for Reuters and she was, as, as I said, for the, uh, the Telegraph. It must have been quite a difficult time to do journalism there. Uh, in some senses, it was because, above all, we had no spontaneous social contact with Chinese people. They were put under great pressure not to associate with foreigners. So we felt totally segregated. All we could get was the official news that was given to us by uh, Xinhua News Agency and two of the Chinese newspapers. But that said... It was an excellent dateline to have because there were so few of us there. Uh, we all called it Peking, not Beijing. So that anything we wrote about uh, from China with a Peking dateline uh, seemed to go down well. And so a lot of us wrote color stories, lifestyle stories, what it was like to be in Peking, um, to live in Peking, and so on. So in that sense, it was very valuable, um, despite the obvious constraints on who we could talk to and what we could publish. Now what's always said about Claire is that she was a sort of consummate networker. Yes, that's right. This was very clearly demonstrated shortly after she arrived in 1973. Uh, the United States opened what it called a liaison office in Beijing, Peking. Uh, it wasn't a full embassy because the United States did not have full diplomatic relations with China at that time. So it was called a liaison office um, but it was staffed by uh, an extremely senior team of U.S. diplomats headed by an extremely eminent person in the diplomatic field called David Bruce, who had been U.S. ambassador in London, Paris, and uh, was extremely distinguished and well-known. So, uh, obviously, as foreign journalists based in Peking, we made it our duty to try and beat a path to his door, to get to know him, uh, to find out all about him, to talk to the great man, David Bruce. Now, in, in the 18 months that David Bruce was in Peking, I managed to have a sort of nodding acquaintance with him. I mean, he was perfectly friendly, but I, I never managed to become a... He, didn't, he didn't, wasn't a regular source for me. However, for Claire, with her wonderful ability to get to know anybody who's anybody who's who who uh, who can be useful to her claire used to have regular lunches with david bruce uh, and which we thought was quite amazing and in in david bruce's memoirs that he wrote after his time about his time in in peking 
Uh, I am mentioned just once, but, <laughs> but Claire is mentioned over 30 times in glowing terms. So that was Claire for you. Uh, she knew how to get on with the good and the greatest people. I'm Helen, and I took care of Claire for nine years. I'm from the Philippines, and I've been here in Hong Kong for nine years. Susan Paris and Helen Penaranda are sisters who looked after Claire for uh, nine years and 13 years. Susan Paris for 13 years. Every day, every day, she will, we will open the BBC News for her. And she was using that um, headset, the big one, before. So whenever that, um, oh, I remember in Ice House, we don't use yet that big, big uh, headset because it's an old kind of television set. So we just put the volume so high for everybody to hear, even the neighbors could hear, because she has to listen to the news. So that time she will always be she would always be tuned into BBC News no other no other channel no switch channels that time and then when it is already on sports no put it off she would say put it off I am not interested in sports that's rubbish a special thank you to Helen Perez and Susan Penuranda, who along with Canadian journalist Kathy Hilborn Feng really took care of Claire Hollingworth in her later years my thanks also to Patrick Garrett Jonathan Sharp and Joyce Lau remembering Claire Hollingworth who died on Tuesday at the age of 105 You're listening to Hong Kong Connection there with, uh, oh, sorry, Hong Kong Heritage with Anna Marie. It's uh, currently coming up to 16 minutes away from uh, 7 o'clock. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. The Chief Executive will deliver his policy address in the Legislative Council on January 18th. The full text will be released simultaneously on the website www.policyaddress.gov.hk. Copies of the full text and a leaflet will be available at public inquiry service centres of district offices and at the footbridge entrance to the central government offices at Tema that afternoon. You will also be able to collect the leaflet at major MTR stations, shopping centres and other selected locations. And so now we present part three of Words Without Music, the memoir by Philip Glass. In the mid-1960s, the composer travelled to Paris to study with Nadia Boulanger, the renowned teacher of musical composition. It was a magical time to be there, and he threw himself into the city's vibrant art scene. The reader tonight is Kerry Shale. Mademoiselle Boulanger was slight of build, but physically very strong. She always dressed the same way, floor-length dresses, all handmade for her. She told me once that, as a young woman, she would submit to whatever was the fashion of the time. Then, in the 1920s, she found the style of clothing that suited her. 
From then on, all her clothes were made especially for her, and frozen in time, never advanced past that period. The first day I met her, she ushered me into her music studio and took the handful of compositions I offered her. These were the very best ones out of the forty or fifty I had written in my five years at Juilliard. She set them on the music rack of the piano and proceeded to speed read her way through them silently without comment, quickly working her way through page after page. Finally, she paused and, stabbing one measure of the music with her long pointed finger, proclaimed triumphantly, "Ah, this was written by a real composer." That was the last compliment I heard from her for the next two years. I left that first day with an assignment to write a fugue and return in a few days. When I returned two days later, she glanced at my poor effort and set a very rigorous agenda for me. I would have one private lesson with her a week, and we would begin with first species counterpoint. That is the very beginning of the study of counterpoint. Then I would come to her public Wednesday analysis class, another private.